Hello, welcome and bienvenue, konnichiwa. It's time for the Armist Inquisition yet again, episode 181 on Sunday, the 25th of April. I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Ben. I'm Armish Matt. And tonight we're going back to the Bronze Age again and back to ancient Egypt because we've got senior lecturer in Egyptology, Egyptology at Liverpool University, Roland Armarsh. How are you doing, Roland? Very well, thank you. And you, I hope you're all well, too. Did I say your surname? What's the pronunciation of your surname? Uh, my pr- the surname is Enmarsh. Enmarsh, rather than Enmarsh. I give it a bit of a French twang there. <laughs> Nobody ever gets it right. Don't worry, it's my, it's my ancestor's fault for spelling it weirdly. <laughs> That's OK. Um, we were just having a bit of a convo about what we would like to talk about regarding ancient Egypt. We've talked about the subjects in different episodes in the past i mean one thing i would like to start off with was maybe more generally what is it about ancient egypt that captures the imagination of the public and it keeps drawing people back over centuries well i think for the general public it goes back to gold gold everywhere the glint of gold it's tutankhamun and the the flickering candles seeing all of the gold (laughs) furniture in the tomb in 1922. Um, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's gold, it's giant whopping great buildings, the pyramids, um, and it's femme fatale like Cleopatra. Uh, I, think, I think, you know, I don't wish to be dismissive, but I think that probably in terms of the Western uh, world, uh, in terms of the popular perception, I think if you had to list the, the most important things, people probably would say Tutankhamun, pyramids, Cleopatra. Yeah. And I guess one sort of aspect is just the the sheer antiquity of it all, because this is one of you know the founding civilizations that we're aware of. But again, there's not sort of this obsession with ancient Akkad or Babylon or these other you know sort of um, parallel civilizations that we're running, is there? No, that, that's right. I mean. Uh... Egypt is one of the four primary civilizations of the old world. So when we say that, we mean civilizations that arose out of nothing. A, a secondary civilization is one that was influenced by a primary civilization to start with. And in the whole of the old world, there are currently thought to only be four. Egypt, Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley uh, in Pakistan, and um, the uh, in China as well. So... Uh, yeah, in that sense, Egypt is one of the very earliest and one of these four primary civilizations. People debate whether actually Egypt and Mesopotamia were linked in some way rather than being completely separate, and I think there is some evidence that that's the case. Um, as to why Egypt is better known than Mesopotamia, there's a whole load of different reasons for that. 
for a start, you can't go on holiday to Mesopotamia, and you haven't been able to for the, since the beginning of the 21st century. Um, Iraq is not exactly a hot, porous destination, which is unfortunate, because one can actually visit bits of it um, if you're intrepid, but you know it's not a mass tourist destination like Egypt. The other problem is that Mesopotamia has no stone resources native to it. Mesopotamia is a giant floodplain, and so all they have is mud and clay and silt, and their entire civilization is basically built out of that. So they build you know, using mud bricks, they write on clay tablets, and actually it's relatively rare to have stone um, uh, objects, let alone whole buildings made out of stone, in Mesopotamia. So for that reason, it's somewhat less impressive to the eye, even if you can get to Iraq, when you go and see these things. Whereas when you go to Egypt, you can see a whopping great pyramid just on the edge of Cairo, or three of them, in fact, and uh, that's damned impressive. Oh, please excuse my profanity. Don't worry about that. There's no shortage of profanity on this show. (laughs) We try and be civilised, but, you know, we are filthy Scythians, pretty much. (laughs) Um, you've got a particular interest in ancient Egyptian language and literature and, and whatnot. Um, now, when most people think of ancient language, they think hieroglyphs. So you'd like have hieroglyphs on the temples, which is obviously like a, re- a religious usage. Um, people who've listened to our podcast a lot will be familiar with the Armana letters, which were more like a diplomatic use of language between pharaoh and various nearby rulers but when you say literature you think more of writing as a form of expression is this something that we have examples of from the ancient egyptian world yes we do and and this is what i'm interested in you're you're right everyone knows the egyptians had writing and they know that hieroglyphs are egyptian writing but we don't tend to talk enough about what they wrote down in hieroglyphs um so you know you've got two things you've got the script that you write in and you've got the language that you you write in as well in english and in french and in german we use essentially the same script the 26 letter alphabet uh which you know with minor variations is essentially the same amongst you know western european languages um so hieroglyphs are a script and they're one of three scripts that the Egyptians used over the course of their civilization. Hieroglyph, the actual term is a Greek one. It means a sacred carving. And it was given to that script by the Greeks in, you know, towards the end of Egyptian civilization. And, and hieroglyphs were always monumental in nature. They were usually carved, uh, often very minutely decorated, but they were for sacred purposes. So you f- tend to find them in temples, in people's tombs, in particularly sacred parts of the world where you want everyone to know that there's something sacred going on. The Egyptians, when they were writing their, you know, day-to-day business accounts, of course, they wouldn't have carved them on wood or stone. That wouldn't have been practical. So that's when they used papyrus. And on papyrus, they used a reed pen, uh, basically a reed that you pluck out of the marsh to the end of it, uh, swizzle it around in a cake of uh, black carbon, you know, from lamp black or something like that, and then you uh, with, with water, and uh, then you write away. And if you write with a brush, it's like painting. It's not like using a biro where you press. It's more like painting on papyrus, and it changes the shape of signs, and it, it favours a more cursive look 
And that script, which the Egyptians originally developed for everyday writing purposes, letters, accounts, um, other kinds of records, was known by the Greeks as hieratic. And in Greek, hieratic means priestly, which is a bit of a misleading term because it's true that by the time the Greeks were writing, hieratic had become restricted to being a priestly script. But originally it was used for everything that hieroglyphs weren't written, that didn't get, get written in hieroglyphs. Um, and finally, towards the end of Egyptian civilization, they had a third, even more uh, short script called Demotic by the Greeks, uh, popular. Um, and uh, that is basically an even quicker, more cursive way of writing with a pen and ink on uh, papyrus. Um, in, now, that's the script. Then you have the language that the script writes, and the ancient Egyptian language is uh, the probably either it's either the oldest or the second oldest language whose writing exists in the world. Of course, we assume that language was invented long before writing was. But uh, basically, Sumerian in Mesopotamia and ancient Egyptian in Egypt are the world's two oldest written down languages. Um, and the ancient Egyptian language evolved over the thousands of years of Egyptian civilization in the same way that if you study English literature, you read about you know, Old English, Middle English, Modern English, you find similar patterns in Egyptian. And the oldest, very oldest Egyptian texts date to around about 3200 BC. And that language continued. And actually, it survived the death of Pharaonic civilization. So after paganism came to an end, when Egypt converted for several hundred years into being a majority Christian country, the, um, the hieroglyphic script died out. It was no longer used. And, and, and indeed, all these other scripts died out as well. But what happened was that people carried on speaking what was by then the current form of the Egyptian language, but they wrote it down in Greek letters. And that last form of the language is called Coptic. And it probably didn't go out of everyday use until about the 14th century AD. And to this day, it is still used by the Coptic Christian Church in Egypt as their sacred language in their church rituals. So in that sense, uh, you know, ancient Egyptian has a, a, a written attestation of at least four and a half thousand years as a living language, maybe 5,000 years if you consider its ongoing use as a religious liturgical language today. Wow. Am I being a bit long-winded here? No, not at all, no. Perfect. no. You, you mentioned the three uh, types of scripts, uh, hieroglyphs, hieratics, and de demos. Dem Demotic. Demotic. Now, were these all three used in parallel throughout ancient Egypt, or was it an evolution from one into the other? Hieroglyphs are used from the very beginning to the very end of pagan Egyptian civilization. Uh, the hieratic cursive form is pretty much as old as hieroglyphs, and it only dies out in the early centuries AD. So, it also, for most of the time, hieroglyphs and hieratic existed in parallel for different sorts of writing. Sacred, you know, monumental sacred texts, hieroglyphs, anything written on papyrus, hieratic, very broadly. Um, Demotic um, is a latecomer. It emerges around about 650 BC which is, by Egyptian standards, quite late. Um, and it's an even quicker version of the script, and it rapidly replaces hieratic for everyday purposes, like writing letters, keeping business accounts, and things like that. Um, you asked me about the literature of ancient Egypt, and, of course, it's one thing to say 
the script and the language, but then what text did people write down? And the thing I study particularly are the, the poems that the ancient Egyptians wrote down. And uh, we have um, a whole, huge flowering of poetry and of storytelling in Egyptian culture around about the turn of the third and second millennia. So around about 2000 BC and for a few centuries after it, we have a big burst of um, poems. Some of them are relatively long. When we say a poem, I mean, it could be, could be several hundred lines of verse long. Um, and some of these are stories, you know, A happened, then B happened, then C happened, uh, that, you know, the, the, the classic narrative. Some of them are um, wisdom texts, so they're about how to live a good life. Um, and some of them are debates between people who take different points of view about some of the core questions of what it is to be alive. So, wow, like Plato dialogue sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So uh, one one of these, for example, is, is called by modern Egyptologists the dialogue of a man with his soul, in which a man has an argument with his soul. Uh, and the man says, life is terrible. It'll be so much better when I'm in the next world, because then I'll be in the presence of the gods. It'll all be hunky-dory. And his soul says to him, you don't know there's an afterlife. The people who built great big tombs for themselves are no better off than those who have been washed up, drowned, dead on the seashore, rotting away in the sun, nibbled by the fish, with no one to mourn for them. Once you are dead, you will not come up again to see the sunlight. Um, so, you know, it, it's, I, I think probably in terms of how people think about Egypt, we usually think that the Egyptians had a really positive view of the next world, the afterlife. Um, and by and large, that's true. But of course, all faith is inextricably linked on the other side to doubt and scepticism. And so there's this consistent minor undertone in Egyptian culture of doubt, fear, and scepticism. And this, this dialogue basically puts these two points of view, and it goes into the ins and outs of it. And as you said, it's not exactly like platonic dialogue. It, um, platonic dialogue takes points in a relatively logical kind of way. It's more artful and more emotional than that. Yeah. But fundamentally, it does the same thing. It puts different points of views and lets them be, you know, worked through so people can gain a fuller understanding of the topic. Sort of like an early artistic philosophy then? It's it's the Egyptian equivalent. I mean, yeah. philosophy was, was invented by the Greeks, but it doesn't mean that other cultures didn't think about the important matters of life. You know, where do we come from? Why are we here? Where do we go? These are not just the Greeks' problems. They're all humans have to face those kind of questions and come up with them. And these kinds of texts address those problems as well. For example, there's another dialogue, um, which is actually about why does evil exist in the world? Um, is it the king's fault or is it his subject's fault? Or is it the god's fault? So, you know, again, you can sort of see these, these fundamental questions, why does evil exist? Is there an afterlife? You know, they're, they're ones that we still grapple with in our own everyday lives, and nothing has changed in the last 4,000 years in that respect. <laughs> Do we know anything about the authors of these these texts? Did they used to sign the work like they, an author would today? No, the um, the Egyptians didn't have the, the concept of authorship in quite the same way. Um, West, Western European culture is pretty obsessed with authorship. Yeah. Not all cultures are. Um, and so most of the texts that survive, literary and other sorts as well, 
are anonymous in the sense that we do not know who composed them. Usually, the Egyptians talk about these texts, and they, they name them after the characters in them, not by who wrote them, uh, which is interesting. And it, it's a bit unclear whether the Egyptians actually thought that the, that the protagonists, the actual characters, were people who had actually written the text. I think, it, I think probably they knew on some level that this wasn't true. Um, there's a very, very dramatic text called The Teaching of King Amenemhat, and it's almost like that bit in Hamlet when his dead father's ghost appears to him and tells him he was murdered. And this is exactly what Amenemhat does. He's, he's been murdered, and he appears to his son, Senwazrit, and he describes his assassination very dramatically. And he says, you know, my subjects were so ungrateful, I did nothing to deserve this. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pre- pretty dramatic stuff. It's quite gripping, really. Yeah, it sounds like... I mean, do 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 any of these texts sort of um, allude to like foundational cultural myths of ancient Egypt in the same way as Homeric stories, and we've got the same from India and the Vedas and whatnot? Um, I, that's a difficult question. To, I mean, each culture is unique to itself, and so it's a bit difficult to just make direct comparisons like that. But yes, many of these works of literature at least play with these core ideas. So, for example. The teaching of King Amenemhat, by the way, the fact that he speaks as a ghost, it's interesting that that text the Egyptians did ascribe to a named author who was not the dead king. Mm. It kind of on some level, they were clearly aware of, 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 the, fict- of the, fict- fictitious nature, the fictitious nature of it. Um, but, uh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. I'm just, I'm just thinking of like the, the sort of found, foundation myth and theology of, of um, yeah. Horus and Isis and... And uh, the slaying of Set, the casting, the chopping up of uh, Osiris's body, and you know Isis yeah. putting it back together, and then uh, shagging his dead carcass and giving birth to Horus. Not is all is all this sort of um, talked about yeah, well, in the poetry. So the, the poetry is probably for entertainment. So it's not the most serious use of writing. We're not talking about scripture. The Egyptians didn't have. Uh, a set fixed canon of texts, like, for example, Judaism, Christianity, or Islam do, which they consider to be their holy books. That doesn't mean the Egyptians didn't have sacred writings. They, in fact, had tons of them, but they didn't have a, a single authoritative collection. And most of their texts that were sacred were for ritual purposes. And you'd, so you don't find them in literature. Literature is for entertainment. Right. And so the literary texts do play with the core cultural ideas, but they often uh, riff on them. Or they sometimes ask difficult questions that would be quite threatening if you actually asked them in a religious context. But at a party, when you're listening to a story, you can say, what if there's no afterlife? Um, the, the Greek writer Herodotus tells us, he visited Egypt in the 400s BC, and he tells us that at Egyptian banquets, uh, they, at the, in the middle of the banquet, they start playing a particular song, and they bring out a wooden figure of a mummy and show it to all the guests who are having the party. And they would be reminded that they had to eat, drink, and be merry um, because it wouldn't last forever. <laughs> so, so you know, so so the Egyptians actually quite enjoyed exploring these kind of what seemed to us to be quite dark thoughts, but they do it in this kind of socially acceptable context. It's it's a bit like why do we like tragedy? I mean, tragedy is really depressing. You know, and all the Shakespeare characters end up dying and gaining heroic self-knowledge just before they're splatted. You might think <laughs> that's a bit depressing. Or why do people watch disaster movies? Human beings like to consider 
the untoward, the disastrous, the difficult. We get something out of it. And I think the Egyptians were just like us in that respect. Do you think, what, what's there like a performative element to a lot of, the, of this stuff then? Was there like um, an equivalent to how um, plays were played out in Greece and whatnot? So for the Egyptians, uh, the word to read is the same as the word to recite. So reading aloud yeah. is very much the normal way that you do something. And quite a lot of these fictional stories are set at the court of the king and somebody comes and tells him a story. And we assume that these fictional settings that are like frames for the ancient stories must presumably have had some correlate in reality. And so for that reason, we assume that performance of literature was key to it. I mean, only about 1% of the Egyptian population was literate. And so, um, you know, for these things to have had much traction beyond a very narrow male elite... They must have been performed more widely. And, and many of these texts we know were read for hundreds of years. We find quotes of them and people criticising each other for not knowing what the next verse is and things like that. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you about, um, I'm particularly interested in esoteric subjects. And when you um, start researching esoterica, symbolism is very important. You know how they say a picture paints a thousand words and, and that. And just thinking back to hieroglyphs, it seems that these other scripts were adopted maybe through uh, convenience or for expedience. Do you think maybe there's something missing in that and that we maybe have lost some mean, you know, the fact that the hieroglyphs are pictorial and that, you know, through symbolism they can convey multiple layers of meaning. Do you think maybe we're maybe missing some of that? I think there, you're absolutely right that the more cursive scripts written in papyrus, sorry, on papyrus with ink are not as pictorial. So they, they, are, they are more abstract squiggles, um, unlike hieroglyphs. Uh, with hieroglyphs, because they never lose their pictorial quality, which is unusual in the history of writing, most cultures move away from picture writing and develop more abstract writing forms. Um, but for Egypt, because their writing signs were also pictures, the boundary between art and writing is actually considerably more porous than it would be in other cultures. And very often you can actually see two wall paintings, which are pictures of things the Egyptians like to do, like going hunting in the marshes, but you can also read them as a sentence if you, if you know what the Egyptians are doing. So they play all sorts of complicated games, um, which it takes quite a lot of unpacking to do. It's a bit like in, in China, of course, Chinese civilization, although its writing is not pictorial anymore, it, it, it is uh, ideographic partly. So it's not just an alphabet. It has signs that convey meaning as well as pronunciation. And because of that, Chinese characters can still have an incredibly dense set of powerful religious meanings within Chinese traditional civilization, and I think it's it's very like that for the Egyptians. Uh, you know, and some Egyptian symbols are so powerful they survived the death of Egyptian culture, the ancient Egyptian culture itself, like the Ankh, for example. Yeah, that's something I'd like to ask you about the the Ankh, because I mean, most people saying seeing that see the cross and they'll think of of uh, Christianity. I mean. What do we have a, a decent handle? <laughs> Is it the handle of the ank? Do we have a decent handle on what the ank actually meant? What it represented? 
So uh, the um, the British Egyptologist Sir Alan Gardner, in his uh, list of hieroglyphs, and this is our kind of industry standard, he reckoned that what the actual picture of an ankh is is the the strap parts of a sandal. If you imagine a simple sandal and you take the sole away, you have the sort of bit that goes between your big toe and the other toes, the loop that goes around your actual ankle, and then a couple of side bits to attach to the sole. Um, and so, so he reckons that the ankh sign was in origin the sandal straps. Um, and I think he might be right. It's a bit difficult to tell with some of these things because they're so ancient they get lost in the, the mists of time at the very beginning of writing itself. Um, but the reason that that would have become important as a sign is not because it, it's a picture of a sandal strap. It's because uh, the word sandal strap in Egyptian sounds the same as the word life. And hieroglyphs, uh, the way that you, uh, when, when you, when they invented writing, they began by writing pictures of the words they were saying. But of course, a lot of words, it's difficult to give a picture for. If you, if you have the word history, for example, that's an abstract idea. It's very difficult to give you a concrete picture. So the way they started writing words that were abstract or difficult to show in a single physical image is they would start using puns. Hmm. So because in Egyptian, sandal strap sounds very similar to the word life, you could write the word life with a sandal strap. And the reason ankh becomes such an important symbol is because, well, the Egyptian world was all about attaining a good life, both here on Earth and even more importantly, overcoming death and living for eternity in the next life. Um, and so all over Egyptian art, you see the sign Ankh. Uh, the gods, if you look in Egyptian temples, the gods are usually shown holding the Ankh in their hands, meaning that the gods bestow life. Sometimes they're even shown holding up life sign to the nostrils of the reigning pharaoh, uh, who is said to be given life by the gods. Um, so this idea that you know they could use this sandal strap, which is actually a hieroglyph meaning life, and they could, be sh- they could be shown in art with the gods actually handing it to the king's nose. It, it just, it's a very good example of how, you know, that's a really blurry distinction between writing. It is a, a, a sign that only makes sense in the written system, but it's being used as iconography. And the Egyptians were past masters at this kind of stuff. I mean, the Egyptians loved esoterica. They loved playing games with these kinds of things. Yeah, a lot of uh, esoteric researchers believe that that's where it all came from, where it all started, was was ancient Egypt, and it's been transmitted one way or another, you know, from that time period through to today. Well, I mean, I think hum- uh, the desire to, to, to discover what is secret was not unique to the Egyptians. I think all over the world you see people wanting to find out about mysteries. Uh, I don't think it's just the Egyptians who came up with that idea. No, I mean, I guess uh, because they're our earliest civilization, it's our, you know, our earliest sort of chance to find evidence for it. You know, I presume that it's gone on since people have been alive, but we just don't have the evidence for it. That's it. I mean, because we we, we have a lot of early religious material from Egypt, from even before the, the literature that we were talking about. So some of the oldest really large body of religious texts anywhere in the world is the Egyptian pyramid text, yeah. which begin to be written on the subterranean wa- the, the, the subterranean rooms of king's pyramids from about the 24th century BC 
onwards. And, and these are ritual texts. So they were rituals that were performed during the funeral of the king and after his death to feed him when he needed feeding after he was dead. And, and some of the texts are also about his resurrection to an empowered place in the afterlife. And, uh, and yeah, there's a lot of esoterica in that. Most Egyptians would not have been had privy access to this information. The Egyptians did not believe that, you know, lay people should know about these things. They are mysteries, and the priests yeah. are guarded. You know, they, they, they are told not to reveal what they see in the sacred precincts. Yeah, this is something that's interesting, the sort of priestly class in ancient Egypt. Uh, was this something that was... Passed down from father to son? Was it something you could attain by aptitude? Um, and, and just what was like the social standing? How did they compare in the in the scheme of uh, ancient Egyptian society? So I think the first thing to say is that not until a relatively late period were priests a discrete group in society as opposed to other kinds of wealthy people. Um, for the, most of the first 1,500 years of Egyptian history, um, priestly activity was one of a portfolio of things you would do if you were a rich Egyptian member of the elite, along with other kinds of things, you know, administrative responsibilities, uh, military responsibilities. So people would have long strings of titles, some of which would be religious, but not all. And actually, quite a lot of the religious activity would be timeshare. You'd only be a part-time priest. So we, we know that what would often happen is that there would be a group of um, you know, a rotor of five groups of priests, or later on, they, they whittled it down to four, um, who would go in monthly rotors. Uh, and so they'd each serve a month in the cult, and then they'd be <laughs> off for the next three or four months. So, you know, this, this, this of course, had a number of benefits. It, it meant that the wealth, the income that came from working as a priest, because it, it was quite a lucrative position, could be spread out amongst the elite. But it also means that people who were priests were, by and large, not just priests. They were also other things as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that begins to change um, from about 1500 BC onwards. Some of the very biggest priesthoods do seem to have developed rather large permanent staff. And this continues, this acceleration continues in the last thousand years before the birth of Christ as well. So by the last two centuries BC priests had very much become a discrete group in society, but that was a, a late development compared to what had been the case earlier. And was there, like, um, specialisations within the priesthood? Would there be, like, the group of priests for Thoth and a group of priests for Isis and different sort of cults uh, within, you know, sort of sectarian cults within the overall theology? Yes, there would definitely have been different... Uh, I mean, the cults were all based in temples, so there would be priesthoods in particular temples worshipping particular gods. Um, that's certainly uh, the case. Whether they were sectarian in, in the kind of modern sense, so, you know, not agreeing with each other, there's remarkably little evidence for that kind of thing in Egyptian thought. The Egyptians were actually quite happy to just mix everything together and assume that even if, you know, there were different accounts of how the world began they all told some underlying story that was beyond direct human comprehension. And so the, the Egyptians seem to have had quite a subtle understanding of the fundamentally metaphorical nature of many of their myths. And it doesn't seem to have troubled them, therefore, that there are these variations in particular tellings of these stories from one temple uh, to another. 
But, but in any given temple, there would be many different types of priest as well. So the most senior priests were no, usually known as hemnetcher, servant of God, um, of which there could be more than one head of the temple. Um, but more modest priests, who were just like the ordinary skivvies, were called wab, literally pure ones. Um, and there were a, a range of other kinds of more specific priestly titles. Some of them were probably not permanent priestly titles, but particular ritual roles that people took on and performed in particular parts of the temple rituals. Uh, some Egyptian rituals happened on a daily basis, and of course some were more festival based and more periodic. And so there's a wide range of different kinds of titles you can have that are connected to priestly activities of different sorts. I mean, I presume education is probably was probably the biggest barrier for someone to get into the priesthood. And you mentioned that it was um, profitable to be in the priesthood. How did they sort of raise, was it through taxation or something? Or wanting... Um, uh, what would you call it? Sacrifice or sacrificial donations, or what? How did that work? How did they make money out of it? So, uh, temples in ancient Egypt, just like say cathedrals in medieval Europe, had vast holdings of land and other kinds of wealth. Yeah. Uh, we actually have some ancient Egyptian th- uh, equivalents of the Doomsday Book. You know, we actually have land registers which show that the largest temples in Egypt had uh, many tens of thousands of acres of land each. Uh, as well as, you know, fleets of ships, orchards, and things like that. So any large organisation like that is going to produce a lot of surplus. And who is going to use up that surplus? Not all of it gets offered as food to the god on his uh, on his altar. There's only so much you can cram into the, onto the altar. And what really happens is, remember that Egypt didn't have coinage until quite late. So for most of Egyptian history, it's a non-monetary economy. That doesn't mean that they didn't have a value system and a way of exchanging goods based on their rateable value, exactly what they did, but it meant that your pay was in kind. And so if you were a priest, you would have a right to a share of the temple income. And the Egyptians uh, were actually quite advanced about this. So, for example, you could sell your right to the share of the temple income to someone else. Uh, and we actually have accounts of Egyptians doing this. And they, they, because they want the benefits in perpetuity, they actually record these legal contracts on the walls of their tombs so that their descendants can go back and point to them and say, look, this really happened. Um, but just to go back, you asked me earlier about, you know, did priests, were priests hereditary? Mm. And all Egyptians, all Egyptians wanted ideally to hand on their jobs to their children. That's not just priests, but everybody wanted to do that. Um, and, you know, the priests very often did do this, and towards the end of Egyptian society, they'd got much more successful at keeping it a closed shop. Um, but that was, again, a, a late development of the first millennium BC. Uh, there's always this tension in Egypt between the idea of the father handing on his office to his son and the prerogative of Pharaoh appoint people who are good and promote their careers. And if you look at the, uh, the biographies that Egyptians write in their tombs, their autobiographies, um, you know, they... Some of them stress their ancestral descent and how they come from ancient and noble families. And some of them stress that the king promoted them because they were clever or or useful. And so there's clearly a kind of tension at the heart of Egyptian society between those mechanisms of advancement. The uh, tension between meritocracy and nepotism. (laughs) Some things never change, do they? (laughs) 
No, well, the, the, you know, I've been studying Egypt now since I was, well, 13, I think, uh, you know, began learning hieroglyphs at the age of 13. So, you know, almost 30 years. And the more I know about Egypt, and I do keep finding out new things all the time, the more convinced I am that human nature really doesn't change. Mm, no. One thing that interests me about Egyptian theology is this um, interest with Sirius in particular in the Sothic cycle, the Sothic calendar. Can you maybe tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, the the star Sirius, which of course is after the the, the planets and the sun and the moon, it's the brightest uh, uh, body in the sky, um, was extremely important for the Egyptians. Um, the Egyptian New Year, in theory, was supposed to begin when Sirius could be sighted for the first time just before the sun rose. Sirius is not always visible before dawn. For parts of the year, it, the sun rises before you see Sirius. And when, on the first day, you could see star Sirius on the horizon just before the sun came up, that was taken to mark their new year. Um, and it usually happened in the middle of summer, mid middle of August, or some middle of July, uh, something of that sort. Um, and it was a very big religious festival. And the Egyptian priests were quite good star watchers. They, uh, they, they sat on the temple roofs and uh, they watched the motions of the heavens. And actually, that's how they timed their rituals at night. They had star clocks. So you would, you would have a couple of priests sitting, facing each other. And one priest would look at the priest opposite him. And he'd look at the stars behind him in the night sky. And he'd be able to work out, you know, at a certain hour of the night, on this day of the year, uh, the culmination of this star marks the sixth hour of the night, and that's when we need to perform this ritual. So actually, for the Egyptians, star clocks are incredibly important, but Sirius is even more important because it marks the start of the new year. In religious terms, the uh, the name for Sirius in Egyptian is Septet, or Sopdet, and uh, she was a goddess, and she's often likened to the goddess Isis, um, and the goddess Isis was married to the god Osiris, and Osiris was killed and resurrected by Isis. And so the Egyptians thought uh, that Orion and Sirius were Osiris and Isis, with Isis travelling after Osiris in the sky. Um, it's, it's a little bit more complex than that. I simplified because when I say Orion, the stars the Egyptians thought made up Orion aren't quite the ones that we had. But the general idea, if you get the idea. Yeah, and yeah, the dog star, that's what they call it, isn't it? I mean, I, w- I would have thought that maybe it was related to Anubis with it being called the dog star, but that's obviously a modern sort of I, meaning. I, well, I think, no, the Romans used this term, didn't they? Because it, it's Canis, is it Can, uh, Canis? Is it major. Canis Major. Yeah, um, and I know that in the Roman world, they, um, they called the hot days of summer the dog days of summer, and it was believed that Sirius's heat contributed to the heat of like sort of a, a roman august um so so, so i'm um, definitely the romans used dog but i'm not aware of uh, um, the egyptians doing so i mean the isis and anubis do occasionally interact in egyptian mythology so i wouldn't hand on heart say somewhere <laughs> in three three thousand years of pagan writing you couldn't find a single reference to sirius and anubis being linked but it's not a major theme in egyptian one of the uh, the common themes with ancient civilizations and their priesthood does seem to be that one of the major functions of the priesthood is astronomy. 
I mean, yes, this has got to be tied to agriculture, I guess, is it? Well, it's, it's partly agriculture, yes. I mean, uh, the, 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 the rising of the star Sirius just before the sun, what's called the heliacal rising, um, as well as marking the new year, uh, it also usually uh, coincides with when the Nile begins to flood. So the Nile every year, at least until the building of uh, the dams in the 20th century, um, the Nile every year would flood in summer and it would bring down the silt from the Ethiopian highlands and uh, it would, you know, when it receded, people would have, uh, you know, plant their crops. And this is, a, this is a key event in the Egyptian agricultural calendar. Um, and so, you know, rather than just being a ritual thing, presumably it was the agricultural significance that made it an important ritual rather than the other way around. Yeah, well, be, being able to predict the flooding of the Nile and, and seasonality of your surroundings is, is crucial, isn't it? Once you start to become a settled civilization and, and putting roots down and building structures, you if you are able to demonstrate your aptitude at predicting these things, you're going to go far, my son, aren't you? Absolutely. The, the Egyptians, like all of us, hated uncertainty. You know, they lived in a world where lots of very bad things could happen and where things could go wrong. And, uh, you know, as do we. And none of us like to think that that's really what happens. And so, like all of us, the Egyptians scrambled for some sense of security, the idea that rituals would give them security, the idea that magic could protect them, the idea that knowing the courses of the, the, the objects in the heavens could actually influence life down here on Earth. And, you know, the ongoing popularity of astrology in today's newspapers and online suggests that we haven't really moved that far along since. <laughs> Some would say it's become rather less sophisticated, maybe, over the last few thousand years. But, it's, but, you know. it's true that, I mean, if you look at ancient Egyptian horoscopes, uh, they are pretty pretty complicated. But, uh, but, but, but yeah, I, I'm sure that, as with all these things, you can do it in a more intellectual or a less intellectual kind of way. I mean, for everyone who just looks at what Mystic Neg or whatever says in, uh, you know, is going to happen to them, then there might well be people who do spend a lot of time studying the tarot and knowing profound, you know, knowing its esoteric significance very deeply. And, of course, there may be non-believers who study it academically as well. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned... Um, uh, oh, no, sorry, I mentioned... <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, the um, sort of the chief, one of the chief reasons uh, for the priesthood, the sort of chief, uh, what do you call it? functions being astronomy did they have like an equivalent of of augury like the romans and the greeks had of of reading entrails and flights of birds and all that sort of thing did the priesthood do that sort of thing the egyptians did have a number of similar sorts of ways of trying to tell the will of the gods in the future so um i must admit i can't think of specifically looking at birds but they did for example look at scarab beetles and their movements and the way they moved. And it's the same principle, just with a different animal. Considerably less of a pain than trying to find eagles, I suppose. Um, but, uh, but they had lots of other ways of trying to tell the future as well. So they had dream interpretation manuals, uh, for example. They also, <laughs> had they also had calendars of lucky and unlucky days with explanations as to what you should or shouldn't do on particular days of the year. Um, they also uh, conducted other kinds of divination tell the future so for example um there's one particular kind of ritual where you have a cup of water and you drop a drop of oil onto the top of the water and the, the patterns it makes as it spreads out 
you then read as if you're doing, you know, a bit like tea leaves in the modern yeah. world or something like that. Um, the Egyptians also listened to natural omens. So there's one interesting text which talks about um, thunder omens and what happens if you hear thunder, which is a relatively rare event in Egypt, but it does happen. Um, there are also other weird and wonderful uh, texts about this. There's one text from quite late on, which is called the Book of the Gecko. And if you live in an Egyptian mud brick house, quite often there are lots of creepy crawlies living with you in the walls. And so something that would happen not entirely infrequently would be a little gecko would drop on off the, the ceiling onto you. And depending on what part of your body the lizard hit, you can <coughs> interpret its meaning. So, you know, if the gecko drops on a woman's left breast, bad, it means that she'll lose her husband, and so on and so <laughs> forth. So, I mean, the Egyptians had tons and tons and tons of this material. Um, and a lot of it's never really been fully published. I mean, some of it's just only now coming to light. I mean, it must have um, it must have freaked them out when unusual things happened in the heavens, thinking like of eclipses or um, comets and things like that. I mean, uh, uh, is there any sort of evidence of them tracking comets or predicting comets or anything like that? So the problem with trying to spot these things in the texts is looking at the words people are using and what they're saying about There is no separate word we can say means comet in yeah. Egyptian. Um, there are references to stars falling, uh, but is that a meteorite? Is it some other kind of... There are a number of possible things you might describe as a star falling. Um, for, so so we're, we're a bit hampered by the vagaries of the terminology, uh, but certainly unusual events were given significance. So um, mm. it's quite likely that at least one of the sacred objects that was worshipped in one Egyptian temple was a meteorite. Um, wow. Because it fell from heaven. It was the symbol of the sun god. And in fact, you know the obelisk, the kind of tall, pointy thing? That is probably meant to recreate in stone the, the, the Ben-Ben object in Heliopolis, which was the center, central temple of the sun god. And it, although that object doesn't survive, it has been suggested that that might have been uh, a, a meteorite, for example. But in terms of eclipses, we do have references to eclipses in Egyptian texts. They're not actually nearly as common as you might imagine over the thousands of years that the Egyptian world existed. But they do, they do occasionally... Um, crop up. And it, we can infer from the way they talk about them that a solar eclipse was considered to be a rather bad thing. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, it's like the death of the sun god, isn't it? Well, it, yeah, exactly. It's, it, it, it ain't good. Um, there's one wonderful text where a king sort of says a civil war broke out in this year, even though there hadn't been a, a solar eclipse. So that kind of shows you kind of what's, you know, by implication they associated would have happened with solar eclipses. And, you know, almost any other kind of unusual phenomenon that you can see in the sky um, probably would have been important to the Egyptians, yeah. Yeah, you would have to think so, because just the amount of time they spend looking up, you know, they don't have the modern distractions that we have, there was no light pollution, um, you know, for 10 hours of the day, you know, lots of them will have been staring at the sky and wondering what it's all about. And you would imagine anything out of the... They would get to know the night sky a hundred times better than any of us alive today could possibly, yeah. uh, you know, try and replicate. And you would think that they would be able to spot uh, more discreet changes maybe than, than we can before the advent of, of modern, you know, technolo technology and astronomy. 
I think that, that it's probably true that they have the ability to do that. What, what, what is di- there's a big difference between ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia. In ancient Mesopotamia, we have many, many more written sources surviving because they wrote on clay, which is more durable than papyrus. Yeah. And so what we really lack are the temple archives where they may have kept records of this sort. We know that in Mesopotamia, this is precisely the sort of thing that Mesopotamian astronomers did actually do. Um, I'd be surprised if the ancient Egyptians didn't, but because of the really quite poor survival of papyrus sources from Egypt, um, it's it's simply the case that we can't demonstrate that for sure until a much later date, what the last few centuries BC, I'm afraid. It makes you wonder what was in the Library of Alexandria, doesn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> that was a... Yes, I mean, we could speculate till the cows come home about yeah. that. I mean, by the time the Library in Alexandria was created in around in the in the 3rd century BC, um, Egyptian star knowledge had fused with Mesopotamian star knowledge, um, and those had both then fused again with Greek star knowledge. So um, basically the whole East Mediterranean went, in terms of their astronomical knowledge, went into a big blender in the last few centuries. And that is what then went on into medieval uh, Christian and Islamic uh, star knowledge as well. Was it, was it Ptolemy who built the library? So uh, the the library probably was built in the reign of Ptolemy II or Ptolemy III. It's a, there's some debate about this, and it's a, so I'm not going to nail my colours to the miles, but let's say the 200s BC. Yeah, so I mean that was was that sort of an attempt to collate all the knowledge that they had and bring it all into one place, one place where people could come and study. Presumably, all this all these texts were scattered across in various temples across the country beforehand. Is that the general idea? Well, th- there's a slightly thorny problem here because we're not even sure whether the Library in Alexandria dealt with anything in the native Egyptian language. Certainly, the aim was to collect everything that had ever been written in Greek no. um, and store that. But it's much less clear whether the library also catered to being a repository for uh, the traditional knowledge of Pharaonic Egyptian civilization in the Egyptian language. Um, and it's difficult to know. I mean, there would have been plenty of temple libraries all over the country that they could have drawn on if they wanted to do that. It's just not clear whether the Greek-speaking rulers of Alexandria cared that much. So do you think right? So do you think the the Hellenization of Egypt from the from the Ptolemies on was quite brutal then, as as con- as far as con- is concerned with the pre Ptolemaic Egyptian culture? Well, I think that's that's a difficult one to answer. I mean, from the time of Alexander the Great's conquest in three hundred and thirty two BC, for about a thousand years after that. Greek language was dominant in Egypt in terms of the very top layers of the administration. Mm. Um, this, in, this includes through the Ptolemies, even under the Roman Empire, Greek remained basically the administrative language of Egypt. So you've got to imagine after Alexander the Great's conquest that, you know, if you want to get on at the very top level of government in Egypt, you probably have to learn Greek if you're an Egyptian. We know that this is exactly the sort of thing that happened. We have plenty of Egyptians who learned Greek and who functioned under the Ptolemies. We also have plenty of Greeks who learned Egyptian, uh, so they could. Do, so there's a lot of interaction there. Right. Um, and, and actually, under the Ptolemies, uh, the, you know, the, if you if you wanted to go to the law, you could do so in Greek or you could do so in Egyptian, and there were actually different legal processes. 
depending on which language you give. So the Ptolemies were quite respectful of indigenous traditions. They, they had kind of parallel traditions to their Greek subjects. Um, and the Ptolemies sometimes present themselves as Greek rulers, presumably for a Greek audience. Yeah. And sometimes they show themselves as you know, traditional pharaonic rulers with the headdress and all of that. So there, there's a delicate balancing act um, in how they present themselves in Egypt. All this changes after the last Ptolemaic ruler, Cleopatra, the Cleopatra. And once the Romans conquer Egypt, they can't be bothered mucking around with these weird indigenous languages and scripts anymore. And... Um, Greek becomes much more the only language of anything administrative. And so after the Roman conquest, um, you know, the, the, the native writing carries on, but it becomes more and more restricted to native elites working in temples. Um, so that after about maybe 200 AD, uh, the num- total number of people who could probably read the, the indigenous Egyptian writing um, was probably quite small. Um, and there was, you know, it's not until the 4th century AD that they start writing Egyptian in Greek letters, and that's because the indigenous scripts are dying out with paganism. Wow. Yeah, it's the ruthless efficiency, I guess, of the Romans, isn't it? That's it, yes. I mean, they, they, they could just about be bothered to learn Greek because they had a huge ship on their shoulder about the Greeks being more civilised than them. But learning Egyptian was a step too far. Yeah, it's play by our rules and... Uh... You know, we'll we'll have a garrison here and a garrison there, and we'll have our man come and ad- administrate everything as well. And just keep your nose uh, nose clean, pay your pay your taxes, and uh, we'll leave you alone. <laughs> That's the theory. Rome R- Rome uh, and Egypt had quite a fractious relationship because uh, you know R- Egypt was where they got the grain ships that fed the Roman plebs. You know the the, the doll the doll yeah yeah. So uh, so if if the Egyptians got a bit uppity. And you know there was a rebellion, and you didn't you know, stop sending the corn ships. That could be mucho problemo for a Roman emperor. Um, and in fact, the the, the Egyptian uh, province had a special status in the Roman Empire. Um, it was a personal possession of the emperor. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and that probably reflects its importance as a breadbasket. Yeah, yeah, the breadbasket of Rome. Um, and gold played a huge role. I mean, I remember when I was reading uh, Eric Klein's book and he was talking about one of the Amarna letters and some other king, some Hittite king, and some other king saying to the, uh, writing a letter to the pharaoh and saying, you know, gold, it's like, it's like dirt in your country. It's everywhere, you know. And this must have been a, played a huge role in sort of the rise of Egypt to become this sort of regional superpower. Yeah, Egypt was a major source of gold. I mean, particularly the Eastern Desert and the Nubian Desert um, is where the Egyptians got their gold from. And in the late Bronze Age, so between about 1500 and 1200 BC, um, the, you know, its richness in gold was one of its really one of the reasons why a lot of people wanted to have good diplomatic relationships with them. Though, of course, the bloke who's writing to the Egyptian pharaoh saying, "In Egypt, gold is as plentiful as dust." is, of course, massively exaggerating. And the point is, please send me more gold. I'm not happy with how much you've sent me. It's a kind of, it's a bit like when you haggle today. If you go, you, you know, go to the souk and you're, you know, trying to say, well, there's a chip on this, this uh, teapot, so I'm going to give you less and all of this kind of thing. I mean, you know, again, nothing changes very much. And uh, international relations are very haggly, in my opinion. And this is something that people never seem to, like, stress when they're reading them. They always take them so damn seriously. Sorry, I've done it again. Um, you know, uh, whereas actually, I think a lot of it you can't read at face value. They're all negotiating ploys. Yeah. 
Um, just to go back to the theology, um, one um, sort of any enigmatic pharaoh who I don't think we've really talked about, who had a, a huge, well, of course, a sea change as far as Egyptian theology goes, is Akhenaten, and this sort of transition to monotheism, uh, which is an interesting sort of subject to talk about. What What's your... Tell us about Akhenaten and what was he thinking? Yeah, so, I mean, Akhenaten led... He, he lived in the 1300s BC, and he didn't have a very long reign. He reigned for 17 years, and in those 17 years, he completely turned Egyptian religion upside down. Um, now, people often say he was a monotheist, but I actually think that it's actually a bit difficult to say that, because if you look at the evidence for his reign... He was obsessed with one particular god. That's certainly true. This god, which is a relatively new form of the sun god, the Aten. Um, and eventually, he kind of built a city where the Aten alone was the god that he was worshipping. And he even had some of the old traditional gods' temples defaced and had the images of the old gods hacked out. And even, in fact, the plural of the word god is occasionally hacked out. Um, but on the other hand... He also worshipped his deified father, Amenhotep III. And I've always wondered, well, how does that work? There's only <laughs> God. And some people have suggested that maybe the God he worshipped was, in fact, his head become the sun god. Who knows? Um, but, but all the same, I think if you go to the city, King Akhenaten also founded a new capital city. And it had giant temples to this new god of his, the Arten. But if you actually go and look at the archaeological finds in people's houses in this city, which do survive, there are often little amulets of the old gods. Um, there are even paintings on some walls of the old gods. Now, it's difficult to know whether these were clandestine by people who were worshipping illegally mm. or risking the displeasure of Akhenaten, or whether, in fact, actually Akhenaten just didn't care. Um, there's relatively little evidence that he was a proselytizer. Uh, you know, he's he's really interested in him worshipping the Arten. And, you know, he says the Arten has dominion over the whole universe. But it's not, there's not so much, you know, evidence that he said everyone must agree with him. Um, and I, in fact, in practice, I find it rather difficult to believe that the Egyptian state apparatus was sufficiently well developed that they could uh, have a secret police keeping an eye on every what everyone got up to in their homes, really. And of course, the most telling thing, is that pretty quickly after he died, within, you know, two or three years, um, the Egyptians began to row quite quickly backwards and to rehabilitate the old gods. It's fairly clear that this was, you know, not seen as a success, and that almost as soon as he was, you know, curled in his grave, um, the, uh, the the powers that be decided they needed to change course and tack back. There's, um, Tutankhamun was probably Akhenaten's son, uh, and, a, and a child, um, and so it must have been his advisors. But there's an actual inscription of Tutankhamun, the Restoration Stealer, where it says, it describes the, the bad state of Egypt when he came to the throne. And it says, you know, the temples had been abandoned and their holy places had become public footpaths, which is not a good thing. Normally, you shouldn't be able to wander through the Holy of Holies of a temple. That's a private place for the god. Um, and he actually, uh, he says, if one prayed to a god for help, they would never come at all. And then, of course, the inscription goes on and tells us how Tutankhamun restored everything. So <coughs> there's, a, there's a hint that maybe this didn't work out, maybe from a... <clears throat> an agricultural point of view? Uh, there's some debate about that. Uh, I mean, I think that 
I don't think really there's strong evidence for there, for example, being a, any problems with the Nile floods or you know, food shortages. I mean, people have suggested this might be going on at this time. I, I think the evidence is quite, quite ambiguous for that. Um, there is more evidence for um, epidemic illness. Um, it, there seems to be some kind of plague which wow. strikes the whole mm-hmm. Near East in this period. And it's quite possible that, and in fact, quite a few royal family members seem to succumb to it. So it may be that if there was an epidemic plague of some sort in Egypt late in Akhenaten's reign, this might have been interpreted as the disfavour of the traditional gods. And the other possibility is that um, Akhenaten does not seem to have been a particularly military pharaoh. Um, And so Egypt at this time controlled quite a large empire in Syria-Palestine reaching up almost as far as the modern-day Turkish-Syrian border, so quite a long way up there. And at this time, um, it comes under threat by the people in what's now Turkey, the, the, the Hittites. So the Hittite king leads a campaign which, which directly threatens Egyptian control in the northern part of their empire. And uh, although it's not entirely clear what happens, it looks as if Akhenaten was unsuccessful in holding on to it. And so the loss of prestige and political power may also have been another sign that the gods, the old gods, did not approve of him. Yeah, and a great opportunity from a PR point of view from the old priesthood to uh, get the way and, and reinstitute the... Again, I, I know what you're saying. It's hard. To, I was going to say polytheism, but it's sort of a, a debatable whether... Uh, that was abandoned or not by Akhenaten, whether he just favoured one god to an extreme or whether he was a monotheist or whatever. It's fascinating. Uh, I can't believe we've gone over an hour already. Um, I've I've completely hogged Roland, Matt and Ben. I don't think you've even got That's one awesome. question in yet. <laughs> I just enjoyed listening and learning. It's, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much, Roland, for your time. It's um, yeah, It's been a great one. Oh, thanks. It's been enjoyable. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I'm sure people listening have. Uh, Matt, is there anything you want to ask Roland before letting go? I was just going to ask, really, you know, what's your kind of favourite thing that you've come across when you've been out in Egypt as a graffiti or some kind of uh, script that you've found in a quarry? Well, so I have a dig in Egypt, uh, in an ancient quarry in the desert, a place called Hanoub, and it was where the Egyptians mined alabaster, so that milky white translucent veined material, which is actually popular today as a tourist souvenir from Egypt, right. um, and which the Egypt, ancient Egyptians used a lot for their religious uh, ceremonies. And uh, in this quarry from 4,000 years ago, the quarrymen actually leave details of their expeditions. So who went there, their life stories, telling us they're good blokes. And uh, since I started work there in 2012, uh, myself and my colleagues uh, from the team, we've, le- we've identified dozens and dozens of inscriptions that no one had ever realised existed there. And nothing in my career compares to the thrill of finding a text that no one has read for 40 centuries. <laughs> yeah. So any of it then, basically. So do you, how, how frequent is it that you come across something in the quarry? Uh, so, well, we, we've we've cleared most of the walls now. So I think I, I think it's unlikely that we're going to find more because you know mm-hmm. basically we we had to clean the walls, we had to remove the rubble on them, and that's how we discovered the inscriptions. Um, but uh, but of course we've still got years ahead of us to actually study them, publish them, uh, you know, think about their meaning, and we're we're still working in 
only one particularly large quarry in this area. There are others that have inscriptions that we are aware of. So we've got a big program of work ahead of us. Right. Okay. Excellent. Well, mm-hmm. I think we should. Uh, I think we should let uh, Roland go. It's yeah, been, if, uh, if we must. Yeah. No, could go on all night about this stuff, but. Uh, yeah, okay, well, well, thank you for having me. No problem. Uh, welcome. It's you. been an absolute pleasure. Just stay on the line for us for one minute while we play ourselves out. And uh, we'll catch you on the flip side, eavesdroppers. Don't touch that dial. Right, then we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. <laughs> that was our chat with Dr. Roland... And Marsh. And Mercier. How did you pronounce it the first time? <laughs> all all, all Marsh. No, it's N Marsh. N Marsh. N Marsh. And I really enjoyed that. Love me yes. a bit of old old stuff, old history stuff. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Excellent beard. Mm. Excellent beard for those uh, watching on Odyssey. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome to Odyssey. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Roland. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I was uh, the the old liter- literature and the poetry and stuff. It's uh, some you know you don't hear about, you don't come across. No. So good to uh, good to talk about that sort of stuff. Good to see where Shakespeare got his ideas from as well. I always wondered. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it makes you think, doesn't it, about sort of what we talk about the interconnectedness of the classical world and ancient world, and you know. There's obvious common themes, isn't there, between stories? There's nothing so, new under the sun. Exactly. So it might, you know, it may have always been there. It's just that he wrote them down in his way, didn't he? I suppose. Mm. Made it his own. Who Thoth? Thoth, Thoth Hermes, yeah. Hermes Trismegistus, Shakespeare. We were talking about. Oh, I thought you talked about the thrice, power. thrice great Hermes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, should we do some housekeeping? Uh, please. Housekeeping! Housekeeping! Become a producer of the Armist Inquisition. There's a myriad ways to become a producer, and we need has producers. So, has, yeah, has someone yeah, are we just going to gloss a, over a jingle? that? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm just going to gloss over that. Gloss over what? What are you talking about? That amazing jingle we, we've just uh, heard. Do you know what I've called it? Uh, is it the disturbed... Uh, Housekeeping remakes. I've called it house corning. Mm. House corning, of course. I was thinking down with the sickness. <laughs> yeah, this is a value for value podcast. Uh, if you find this pa- podcast, podcast, I, I, I went a bit, I went a bit New York there. Was it Brooklyn? Brooklyn, maybe? You found this podcast valuable? <laughs> Return some value to us. Sweetie. <laughs> There's a myriad, a myriad of ways of returning value. Send us news stories that are interesting, that are weird. News mm. clips, 
um, media clips. It's time-stamped. Preferably time-stamped mm. if it's a long clip. If you, find, if you hear something weird on the news or on a yeah. YouTube video, send it us with a timestamp if you feel that it requires or deserves reamplification. <laughs> Hit people in the mouth. Word of mouth. Tell people about this podcast if you enjoy it, you find it valuable. Mm. Word of mouth is the best form of advertisement. Tell people mm. about it. Yeah. How could you have not had any value from that last hour with Dr. N. Marsh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Learned about mm-hmm. ancient history. I definitely learned a lot about ancient literature. Yeah, yeah. me too. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. More importantly, subscribe to the Odyssey channel. Yes. Um, because, you yeah, know... support us. There is options to sort of get crypto kickbacks from that. If we If we do well on there... And that helps with the running of the show, pays for the Zoom subscription every month, the hosting costs, the website, everything else. Uh, social media, follow us on Instagram, Twitter. Spread the word via those mediums. Mm-hmm. You know, we release, uh, we do like a post every week of the episode, the Spotify mm-hmm. link or whatever. Share it. Share it on your profile or your, your Twitter feed or whatever and tag us in it. That would be greatly appreciated. Three seconds, but it's it, it's massive value to us. Uh, exactly. You're spending that three seconds. Yeah, your time. You know, that's part of the, the value. That's how you can become a producer, spending your time mm-hmm. uh, to help us is much appreciated. Uh, you can send us memes for Instagram. You can email us at thearmsinquisition at gmail.com. Um. Check out the merch at the Amish Loot Chest. Mm. Link in the description. Get your... Because mm, I'm literally a communist. Hoodie or your... Currants. Grape. T-shirt. Mm. Or your official mug. Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, that helps. Uh, do we miss anything off the housekeeping? Or the how to become a producer? Obviously, you get a credit as well. Yeah. You know... If you do something that we feel find valuable, we'll give you a producer credit in the show notes. You can put that on your LinkedIn, on your curriculum vitae. Yep. Producer of Armist Inquisition, episode 181. Mm-hmm. Um, any other way to become a producer? Um, Toss us off. I mean, tosses a coin. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty, oh valley of yeah. plenty. Oh. It's important, go. It's important. Toss Do it for the, the lads. Witcher, lads. Oh, lads. And it really bothers me. It does bother me that we don't get enough uh, monetary donations. But you can do that. If you go to thearmistinquisition.com, you'll find the PayPal button there, and you can sign up for a monthly ticking over donation or give us a one-off. Either is greatly appreciated. It all mm. goes either to the running costs, and if there's any left over, it goes on better equipment, investing. We're investors in people. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We having that or not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we invest, don't we? Yeah, in the you best. Put it back into the show, essentially. So we're, in, you know, we're not, we're not yeah. looking to. We're not uh, profiteering. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Technically, we're investing in the listeners, aren't we? Of course, yeah. Technically, I mean, the ideal place for me 
would be if the donations got to the level where I, because I have a flexible uh, occupation, where I could essentially take one day a week off my normal day-to-day job and spend it on this, either in the pre-production, the post-production, the organising the guests or whatever. Obviously, you know, that's a dream. That will probably never happen unless you you fuckers support us. So, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's going to be, if you give us donations, it's going to go straight into the show and make the show better at the end of the day, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, I got some communiques, actually, this week. I thought I would, um, we got some Odyssey communiques. So I thought they'd be worth highlighting. Um, this one is from Dean Machine. <laughs> I listened to this and just had to watch it. Uh, he's talking about the last week's episode with Jared Murphy. Uh, I'm with I'm with Jared and Hancock on this. Keep up the good work. Great to see you guys on Odyssey. Yeah, well, thanks. That's for the comment. And then uh, got another one from the Big Conspire. I normally listen to your podcast while at work, but had a day off and decided to watch the vid instead. It's good to put faces to the voices. Oh, and the subject you were chatting about was pretty good as well. So that's The Big Conspire, and uh, The Big Conspire are a UK conspiracy podcast. Oh, right. I think they're down in sunny Essex by the sounds of it. <laughs> I want pirates, then. I want to say. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, good laugh. You uh, you should check out their uh, their show on Odyssey, or I think okay. you can, I think you can get it on you know most podcast players. But it's a good laugh. The couple of brothers talking about conspiracy theories, right? Right, and uh, very, I would say, quite similar to how our show was before we started get, getting guests on. Yeah, you know, it's entertaining. It's funny. Mm-hmm. You know, Loose format. Our show isn't like that anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. It's good fun. And uh, yeah, check them out. Um, yeah, shall we uh, thank the producers for episode 181? Go on, we do. Should we big them up? It's time to big up the man Dems. Yo. <laughs> uh, producers for episode 181, we have Nomi Noznoj, Dean Machine. Uh, Simon Laurie King from the Slick Podcast. Uh, thanks for setting us up with Jared last week. Uh, online chemistry tutor, Mama, da- uh, Mama Bear from Sunny Essex. The Big oh, Conspire, <laughs> Wandering Wyatt, Anonymous, and everyone who bought merch this week. Thank you. Thank you for your support. Mm. You're so amazing in your love. They are. Yeah. So amazing in their chest feeding. Love. Literally. Suffering. The dwarf. The current. The grape. The homophobe. The winds. The misogynist. The uh, tosilizu mab. The fucking vegan. The route to liberty. Can you? The line dog face pony soldier. The asna. The corrupt cunt. The devil in a rock at a hard place. The number 11. The special deposits. The big stud. The blind man. The communist. On the horizon. The cripple and the mother. Money bickering. From like a judgment day and terminating. Like, I don't get it, never will. Yeah, thanks for your support for another week. 
It's time to big up the man Dems. Yo. Let's uh, let's move on. People have got to understand vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass. From hell. Oh! You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Like a judgment day and terminating mode like... It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal. Anal swab tests in the same ballpark as seasonal influenza. Because I'm getting bored and want to have fun. I can't serve you if you're not wearing a face mask. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. There was a, a big press conference from Bojo the Clown this week. That's I don't it? know if any of you saw it. Yeah, early in the week. I think it was, Tuesday. Tuesday. It was Tuesday. Updating on the... The roadmap. Roadmap and the scariants and, and, and all that shit. And uh, I'll tell you what, the, the fucking journalists are inept when it comes to the questioning. The best question of the whole press conference was the first question offered to a, a member of the public. And these must be vetted. Yeah. yeah Unpicked idiots. They are. They're selected for their, their tameness, I imagine. Well, handpicked... Sorry, I thought there was, yeah, I'm sure there's like a form on YouGov you you can, uh, a dot .gov, I should say, <laughs> that you can uh, fill in. Well, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say handpicked idiots in this respect because this is a very good, pertinent question and the answer, well, I don't know, you see if you make any sense of it. Great, thanks very much, Nikki, and thanks for, for those slides. Let's go to Annette from Leicester. Are there any plans for the daily COVID statistics to include numbers of new admissions and deaths involving people who have received a COVID vaccination? Yeah. If not, why not? That's, yeah, that's a, a good question. It would be interesting to have a handle on that data, would it not? Uh, yeah, and it's not what the first saying? time it's been asked, has it? Hmm? It's not the first time it's been asked, sorry. I'm sure that's been asked by... It, it was asked in the House... Parliament. He was asked in the House of Parliament to Health Secretary Man- Matt Hatmancock. Yeah. Yeah, this is the first time it's been uh, asked at a live press conference to Bojo the Clown. Would you like to hear the response? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> that is an excellent question, uh, Annette. Uh, the uh, the answer, I'm afraid, is is simply that uh, I, I I cannot give. I, I don't know uh, whether uh, we are we are yet uh, able to give you uh, those data, or indeed what that statistic would say if we were able uh, to give it to you, Annette. That's not because we want to uh, to, to to conceal anything from uh, people. We I, we simply don't know, know that data. I, mean, I suspect the number is, is is very small. Suspect conjecture. We have no numbers. You can't yeah, make that assumption. But uh, if, in, if indeed there are any. But, um, uh, Nikki, if you'd like to, yeah, to comment I'm, on absolutely, that. Absolutely, thank you. And then he throws, the civil, ser- yeah, throws the civil servant under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> but this is like you said, isn't it? Surely, you know, it's not a case that they've randomly selected someone on Zoom to ask a question. This question has been vetted. You know, you would have thought they would have. Someone would have said, "We at least we know this question." I'm pretty sure the questions from the press are vetted as well to a certain extent. That he, he doesn't have a prepared answer to it. If I was in his PR 
you know, he has a team of people that prepares him for, e- I mean. for each press co- press conference, yeah. and this would be one of the questions at the top of my list to yeah. make sure he has a fucking decent answer for, <laughs> or just an answer. Do you not think that might have um, circumvented the vetting process? Oh, so gave a different question and said, oh, I'll ask this, I'll ask this, yes, I'll ask this, I know what to do. Right, now you're live, unmute yourself, ask a different question. Well, yeah, like... there's been nothing to stop that unless you started. I'm sure there's a there's a delay or a, a crash button that you can push if, if you start effing the, the I think there are journalists in the room Mm, I thought they did it over Zoom. Didn't they? I think there'll be people in that. No, you would find out they can't subvert it with a dump button. Oh, I see what you're right. Okay. Uh, it would get out. They can't do that. But yeah, I think you're right, Ben. I think she, you know, applied with the usual stupid softball question. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't. I, how, how else can you explain his stupid answer? Because he's Boris Johnson, he's a moron. No, I'm not buying that. A, a, he's not a moron. And B, he has the arms of the state preparing him for this shit. What he should have said is, I wasn't expecting that question and I don't have an answer for it. Next. Yeah. Then more respect for for him saying that than just bimbling along and and like eating up a, a minute and a half into the remaining question time, which was probably tactical because like you say he's he's not an idiot no and it just throws it when you watch the whole thing and then they have two questions from the public and then they have the journalist questions and you just think what is going on with journalists why are they not holding this guy to account half the questions were about the european super league (laughs) the country's been locked down for over a year and the journalists are asking about football. That's all people care about. People care more about yeah, that football nonsense. Really? Than civil liberties and what? Was it not a COVID press conference? It was a prime minister's... Yeah. yeah well, that's the subject of the day, isn't it? Well, it's, it wasn't like a... This is not a thing, is it, that's regularly done before COVID, that you had to sit <clears> down... Like, you know, they did press briefings, didn't they, at, in the White House of that famous room or whatever. The copy in the White House, the taking on that thing. This is why yeah, they've but... built this new studio where they do it all now. They're trying to oh, mimic yeah. what they do in the States. So this is this going to be like a new thing then? Are I think so, yeah. Going forever, they're going to have this kind of... Com- so it wasn't necessarily that they shouldn't... It, this is just about COVID then that they were talking about. That's just the subject of the day, isn't it? Once right. we get bored, of, it'll be climate change press conferences in six months. Yeah. Once the public they used to do a, a people's PMQs, didn't they? I think David Cameron started that. It might have even been before him, where you could. It was could Bojo. Questioned by a Twitter or whatever. Was it was it, Bojo, was it Bojo who started it. Yeah, on YouTube. Right. So <laughs> they're moving towards this sort of like American style system of, of press conferences and like turns and things and yeah, and people sat in rooms. Which anyway, is fair enough. Anyway, uh, continuing the press conference, he managed to get in, uh, slip in the particular uh, catchphrase into this answer. I don't see any contradiction, uh, Vicky, between growth and jobs and building back better and tackling climate change. He's got to get that in there. Mm. about that? Build back better. I thought he was going to say, toss a lizu mob. <laughs> uh, toss 
Tocilizum, mum. Funny you mention that, Matt, because um, therapeutics are on the way and antivirals. Emily, on the uh, antivirals, uh, we've been discussing uh, that obviously we have the there are various shots we already have in our locker, like uh, uh, dexamethasone. I think remdesivir is also. Yeah, what else? What else, Borjo? What else is in the locker? Uh, is also used in some cases um and then there you know there are various other treatments with uh names that, that you know sounding a bit like aztec uh, divinities <laughs> sarilumab uh yes. it, uh, was tosilizumab uh, and 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 various others uh tosilizumab tosilizumab was tosilizumab sarilumab you do all four at once Oh dear. Yeah. So it was good. It was um, uh, frustrating and uh, entertaining in equal measure. The uh, big press conference from this week. So anyway, there was. Uh, I pulled a clip from No Agenda from I think it was last Thursday's show, mm-hmm. uh, which I found interesting. It was a, a producer anecdote. Regarding vaccine sound uh, sound effects, <laughs> side effects, and uh, I found this fascinating. Just listen to this anecdote. It says, uh, I have an anecdote about one of the Chinese vaccines. Not sure which one, but my best friend's mom lives in the Dominican Republic. She's a woman of almost 80 years old. She, like many older Dominicans, was unhappy that her only option was the Chinese vaccine. She was ranting to my friend, doctors, nurses, anyone who would listen that the Chinese gave them the virus, and now they were giving them the vaccine. She made the connection, didn't like it. So when the big day came for her first shot, my friend called her to make sure she was doing okay. She seemed much calmer, less agitated. She was no longer ranting about the Chinese. She claimed no real side effects, except hours. Remember, she's 80 years old. Hours after getting the vaccine, she had an orgasm. And then the next morning, another one without any sexual contact at all. Years of having not had any sexual pleasure. She's having orgasms on a regular basis. Now, this is some marketing we could just get by standing around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess. Wow. It's the orgasm job. <laughs> what the fuck? That's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yellow hey, card. How do, we, <laughs> how do we explain that one, Ben? I've no idea. Oh, boo. Um, Let's get us an expert on. Yeah, I I see the the ways of the women are mysterious to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, amen. Agreed. Uh, moving on. Move on. Yeah, uh, there was um, Pfizer's CA- CEO Albert Burla. Burla. He was interviewed this week on uh, NSCNBC, I think it was. And it was this. Pu- it was like a proper puff piece with uh, <laughs> the Pfizer CEO and some spokes hole from CVS, which are which is like uh, the equivalent pharmacy. of boot, Boots, yeah, American pharmacy, massive national chain, who've been uh, doing the jabs, the pokes mm-hmm. in the rollout. And um, I took a few clips that I found interesting. Uh, this is Albert Bullier on the subject of. Revaccination. If you are asking me, I think that um, there will be a need, based on this data, for uh, revaccinations. Um, 
we need to see what will be the sequence and for how often we need to do that. That remains to be seen. A likely scenario is that there will be likely a need for a third dose somewhere between uh, six and 12 months. And then from there, uh, there will be an annual revaccination. But all of that needs to be confirmed. And uh, again, uh, the variants will play a key role. Yeah, so if you think this is over, once you get your two jabs, your jab and your booster, think again. You're going to get another one in autumn, and then you're going to get one every autumn for the rest of your life. That's what they want for the rest of your life. Can I just have them all at once to save time? (laughs) I don't know. Would that work? I probably only need ten, and <laughs> oh, you could last uh, ten years, maybe. Or you could just not get it. Uh, it's going to be like flu, isn't it? I mean, I can't remember the last time I had a flu jab. Probably through work, but um, yeah, I think it'll be like that. They'll move on to something else to make money from. Yeah, people will get bored of it. Hopefully, orgasm jabs probably. <laughs> yeah, it's great marketing, that isn't it? Why? Yeah. Why are they picking up the orgasms? I don't know. Anyway, um, he goes on to um, uh, address the question, Albert from Pfizer. He goes on to address the question of vaccine hesitancy. And I think this might be a truth trying to come out moment here. You're absolutely right on both. It is extremely important to make sure that we convince everyone who has hesitations right now, who has concerns, that... uh, uh, they should uh, receive the vaccine. Uh, by receiving the vaccine, is not going to affect their own health. What do you say? It's not, by, it's not going to affect their health. By receiving the vaccine, is not going to affect their own health. That's not the idea, is it? <laughs> Isn't it going to make you safe? By receiving the vaccine, is not going to affect their own health. Yeah, but he's saying, isn't he, from the perspective of a thingy? Someone who's uh, more importantly, they're going to affect the health of others and very likely the health of uh, the people that they love the most. <laughs> I just found it funny the way he phrased it. Maybe it's just a language thing. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. How do we convince young people to get the experimental vaccine, Albert? Well, I mean, uh, myself, the most uh, convincing argument that I have found in having discussions with uh, young people, it is, uh, tell me how much you love your grandparents, your parents. This is the most convincing argument because immediately they understand that this is not about them, it is about the people that they love. Tell me how much you love your grandparents. (laughs) You know, so even if they were vaccinated... (laughs) And their grandparents were vaccinated. This is still a chance that they might die. How effective yeah. is Pfizer's vaccine? Is it 95 or something? 90? High. Bingo. So, yeah, according to, according to Pfizer's press release, <clears throat> it's 95% effective. So, you know, that's like... <clears throat> Does that mean then that, you know, grandma has the vaccine, the Pfizer's vaccine, she has her two jabs, then, you know, even then, if she's surrounded by people who had COVID and she contracted COVID, she'd have a 95% chance of not dying. 
The problem I, is... Sorry, go on. Uh, yeah, what is that 95% mean? I mean, is it it's hospitalisation and death? Or is it mm. hospitalisation? Or is it catching it? Or is it just death? Or is it um, mild, mild symptoms compared to severe symptoms? Mild to moderate symptoms. So she has a she has a 5% chance of getting um, greater than moderate symptoms of COVID and potentially going into hospital and dying. If you're vaccinated as well, you also have a 5% chance of, mm. of having COVID. And arguably being able to pass that on as well. I mean, it's... I know this is the no, no. The, the problem is, can you still pass it on and, and what? The other thing is, is you're being like you, you said last week. You're being bed if you're ill. Yeah. The problem is, is with the construction of the trials, data analysis, endpoints. What are the endpoints of the trials? Mm. And they were snide in doing the press releases. Pfizer were first, I think, and then the other pharmaceuticals got their press releases out in the same week. Yeah. Because they'd been pushed. There's a really interesting article in The Lancet this week, and it's talking about the effectiveness of vaccine and the, the uh, trial literature and its interpretation or manipulation, if you want to be that way. And they talk about the difference between relative risk reduction an absolute risk reduction. So Pfizer come out with a press release before they've published anything about the trials saying our vaccine is 95% effective. Now that's relative risk reduction. So for example, with the Pfizer trial, uh, Pfizer says it recorded 170 COVID-19 cases um, with a remarkable split of 162 in the placebo group versus eight in the vaccine group. That's where the 95% figure is derived from. So that's 170 COVID-19 cases in the study population, which is 44,000, right? So would you like to take a stab at what the absolute risk reduction is of the Pfizer vaccine according to their own data? Uh, Less? Low. <laughs> I thought I'd written it down. Uh, 0.84%. So you're saying what's absolute risk? So is that your risk you, of getting COVID and being hospitalized? Completely nil. The vaccine, Pfizer's vaccine, has an absolute risk reduction of 0.84%. Your absolute risk is so low anyway, right? That's yeah. quite low. How many people do we know between the three of us who've been hospitalized with COVID 19? None. One, I think. But I know one who got put on a drip for a couple of hours and then felt great, felt better rather, because <laughs> mm. he, he weren't eating properly. And they went, he went, to, he went to hospital. They put him on a drip and then sent him home. So, and and this is, you've got to remember that this is only <laughs> applicable to the duration of the trial. So the. You know, the trial takes place in a certain country at a certain time in a certain duration. If it's done in the summer, if your trial's done in the summer when COVID prevalence is on the floor, then that affects your, your ARR, your absolute risk reduction. 
But that's not what you see on the news. It's 95% effective. Right, okay. Mm. It's statistics. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. But, you know, you want you better tech it if you want to go to the pub. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I know. Uh, really interesting study. I'll put the link in the description. I've got some... Uh, I, I uh, copied and pasted a bit here uh, about the, uh, the Lancet article. I'll just read a bit for you. Um, there are many lessons to learn from the way studies are conducted and results are presented. With the use of only RRRs, that's relative risk reductions, that's the 95%, and admitting ARRs, absolute risk reductions, reporting bias is introduced, which affects the inter- interpretation of vaccine efficiency. When communicating about vaccine efficiency, especially for public health decisions such as choosing the type of vaccines to purchase and deploy, Having a full picture of what the data actually shows is important and ensuring comparisons are based on the combined evidence that puts vaccine trials results in context and not just looking at one summary measure. Such decisions should be properly informed by detailed understanding of study results requiring access to full data sets and independent scrutiny and analysis. So it ties into side effects. If your chance of a side effect is um, one in a hundred thousand, but you're say a young twenty-five-year-old person with no health worries. What's your absolute? Again, the absolute, the ARR, the absolute risk reduction isn't age stratified. That's across the study population, which will be people from eighteen to seventy. Mm-hmm. The AARR for an eighteen-year-old is going to be so minuscule. Mm. you have to question whether it's worth that risk. Mm -hmm. But I'm not a doctor. I do not offer medical advice. Do your own research. Don't listen to what you're being told from the spokes holes on TV and come to your own conclusions. Make your own decision. Uh, Carry on. Unfortunately, comparing vaccines on the basis of currently available trial interim data, because obviously the the trial is still ongoing. It's going until 2022, I think or early 2023, I don't know. Uh, It's made even more difficult by disparate study protocols. So he's talking about each drug company. I, being a cynic, I think they do this on purpose. They have different endpoints. They have different term lengths for the study. They have different stratifications of study populations to just muddy the waters. Uh, Disparate study protocols, including primary endpoints, such as what is considered a COVID-19 case. So the Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, the AstraZeneca, they all have different definitions for what a COVID-19 case is. Uh, when is when it, is this assessed? The types of placebo, which we've talked about, they muddy the waters by using different placebos in different populations. Study populations are different. Background risks of COVID-19. All right, so Pfizer, do you study in India now? Mm-hmm. Your results will be vastly different doing a study in India now than in... Uh, China where the, or New Zealand or Australia where there seems to be no community transmission uh, duration of exposure different definitions of populations for analysis both within and between studies as well as definitions of endpoints and statistical methods for efficacy so the statistical analysis is different between different trials there's no sort of universal um, standards standards 
Uncoordinated phase three trials do not satisfy public health requirements. Platform trials designed to address public health relevant questions with a common protocol will allow decisions to be made informed by common criteria and uniform assessment. These considerations on efficacy and effectiveness are based on studies measuring prevention of mild to moderate COVID-19 infection. They weren't designed to conclude on prevention of hospitalization, severe disease or death, or on prevention of infection, or on transmission potential. Assessing the suitability of vaccines must consider all these indicators and involve safety, deployability, availability, and costs. It's a great article. It's worth reading if you're uh, interested mm. in vaccines. And science. Yeah. This is what it is. This is science in, in action. <laughs> and people need to call out when uh, PR and marketing is getting in the way of it. Mm, funny stuff going on I think it is it's it's interesting to get involved uh, to sort of look into and research and uh, the Lancet's been putting all sorts of interesting articles and and studies out over the last year you know it's uh... it's a shame really that uh, this isn't discussed isn't it why is it down to us to do this yeah there's, there's no you know there isn't a really alternative, is there, to the to the discourse? Unfortunately, no. It's the milieu, isn't it? <laughs> it it's the thing is, it comes back to that. It's, it's the censorship, isn't it, of alternate voices, and then you you're thrown in as a anti-vaxxer and a conspiracy theorist, COVID denier. Co- yeah, COVID denier. COVID idiot. COVID idiot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, when really just it, there, there are legitimate questions aren't there it's just i think people are so desperate aren't they to for things to end and go back to normal that you just want to believe don't you <coughs> yeah and fear and propaganda mm. plays an important role in uh, sort of molding yeah people i think yeah a lot of it's probably people not wanting to admit, I think uh, I don't think I have any any major problems admitting when I get things wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people do. It mm. becomes an ideological thing, doesn't it? People invest in this worldview, their standpoint. Yeah, I've if, read some interesting things about the the moralization of um, having a vaccine and COVID oh, yeah. in general. And wearing a mask and all that kind of stuff. It's become a moral issue very quickly. Why, why do you think people on their Facebook put the I've had my vaccine frame on their picture? <laughs> oh, I don't, no, I don't go on or they, they take a selfie of them of themselves with their vaccine card. It's virtue yeah. signaling. It's that, isn't it? But it's also it's this natural propensity, isn't it, to create in and out groups. That's what we do. Yep. Psychologically, you know. And you always, you know, you compare yourself to another group and you think you're better than them because you do one thing and they don't do another. And the powers that be are well aware of this psychology and they use it against us. Mm. Why do you think, you know, it's like the left and right? You're like your left wing, (laughs) filthy left wing hippie or you're a right wing uh, psychopath with no uh, empathy. It's divide and conquer. That's all it is. Keep the plebs fighting amongst themselves and we'll just do as we please. 
Rules mm. for thee and not for me. Um, have we got time for the unheard priests? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, un- okay. un- this? Unheard had um, two priests on. Really? Yeah. Okay. Talking about the last year and, and the role of the church and the whys and wherefores of lockdowns and vaccine passports and stuff. Really interesting. Like, two, they're both doctors. One of the guys, like, was younger than us. Incredibly eloquent, well-spoken, and um, looking at things from a theological point of view, which we we haven't really done over the over the last year with the yeah. current viral. Should get one of them on. I would um, it, definitely. Is one of them? Is one of them a denier? There was a young priest and an old priest. <laughs> <laughs> you need to know. Uh, yeah, so I took a few. Well, I took loads of clips because it was so clippable. Um, so we we'll maybe just do a couple. Um, I thought they came up with some really interesting implications that maybe haven't been discussed before, not not even on here. And uh, they're just all labelled Unheard Priest 1, Unheard Priest 2, so I've no idea what they're going to say, but let's, uh. let's try one. And then, of course, finally, in particular, we are simply saying it's impossible theologically um, for the Christian church to close its doors to those who have been branded... By, uh, by society uh, in the in our particular time as being socially undesirable is absolutely anathema to the Christian gospel. That would be like the Lord Jesus Christ standing up and saying, well, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, except those of you who are sick, except the blind, except the lepers, except those who are tax collectors and sinners, uh, and so on. You've got to produce your passport. So it's absolutely impossible theologically, and that's really, I suppose, where it, where it hits uh, home for us. So that's relating to the vaccine passport. It's anathema to the teaching of the gospel, isn't it? Right, so he's sort of saying that, you know, it shouldn't be something that the church should be enforcing, you mean? There are murmurings that the government is going to impose legislation that you can't go to church unless you've got a vaccine passport. Oh, God. Right? So... Putting a limit on the religious worship. Well, the church leadership is nowhere to be seen. These are two priests who've have signed like a, a combined letter to write to the government or to send us the church church of england or whatever to say you can't impose this this completely goes against the teaching of the yeah. gospel we mm. will not admit person a, a b or c because they haven't had a medical procedure is it not just is it just churches i assume it means all religions you know like synagogues and uh, mosques, <laughs> mosques. That's it. That's the word I was looking for. And you know, so on and so forth. Temples. Yeah, I don't know what the uh, connota- not the connotation, the uh, the feedback would be. I don't know how a vaccine passport would contradict Mohammedan principles because I, I'm ignorant when it comes to Islam. Mm. But we know because you know I've been raised Christian. I've got a decent handle on what the Gospels teach, and I'm pretty sure it's it's said that, you know, the church is shut to people who haven't had a vaccine, which yeah. is the point he's just made, isn't it? Mm. Some, an argument I hadn't heard before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where has the church been for the last 
12 months. You know, we put up with an awful lot in churches, obviously the closures, but masks, you know, no singing, uh, social distancing, all, all sorts of all sorts of things which have tied uh, vicars and priests up in all sorts of bureaucratic and administrative tangles. Uh, but I think when you say to people who are genuine Christian ministers that there is a possibility that the government may try and force us to exclude people from churches on the basis of whether or not they've had a certain medical treatment, I think that is crossing a line for lots and lots of sincere people. And I think that this this uh, this be one step too far, and that they're wi- they're now willing to say, you know, this far and no further. This is unreasonable. I think I think many people can also see the illogicality of this. That this doesn't this doesn't even make sense, even according to the government's own logic. If the if the vaccines protect people, then the status of people who are unvaccinated is is basically irrelevant. Yeah. You know what? I bet a lot of pub landlords feel exactly the same way. I think they do. And, you know, they're, they're just not going to allow the government to pressure them into enforcing, you know, no pass, no bass. Um, the, uh, going back to the press conference, he was asked about vaccine passports and he gave out the line he's been giving out for weeks. You know, when things open on May the 17th, you do not have to think about vaccine passports. They, they, they haven't decided yet. They're, mm. they, they're not ruling it out, put it that way. Mm. Which means that they're actively considering it for things I think like... It'll be more travel. It uh, no, more it's sense definitely travel. travel. It's already... Mm. That's dead. That's written in stone. That if you want to mm. go abroad, you're going to have to have one of these. But it's still in play whether they're going to make this applicable to if you want to go to the pub or to church, which should be fucking worrying people. But you know, what if you want to drink in church? Well, you know, that's the sacraments, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was the it's uh, whole point. Celebrate the Eucharist. Yeah, that dirty chalice with all those. <laughs> oh yeah, lips around it. Did you ever used to take the wine? Yeah, I used to as a child because you know a bit oh, of wine. All that bad. It was, it was, was it not like 90% backwash by the time you got yeah, to well, it? This, this is what I was just about to say. The thing, because I started going back to church um, pre-COVID and for a couple of years, and um, the thing that used to get me was, it makes me feel sick now, is, um, you know, there'd be a person that goes up and helps helps the priest out by giving out the wine. There's normally two yeah. chalices. And, you know, everyone would line up, so 100 and odd, 200 people, potentially. Not everybody has the wine, but some would. And they have a sip, put it back, sip, 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 sip. So, you know, 100 people have had a sip out of this chalice. The, then the person takes it back up to the back of the altar <laughs> and then... They swill it around like that, and they drink the last of it themselves. Yeah, yeah. and I just every time I'd watch them do it, and I go, "Oh God, oh no!" And just think, oh. <coughs> "Yeah." Like if the chalice had more in it when it got to the priest at the end, of it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've got one more priest clip. Response to this pandemic has 
been so extreme that it has it's transgressed into the whole area of what it actually means to be human. We've got totally confused about what what is what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, <laughs> what life actually is and what it's about. And we've become so fixated on the, this idea of saving lives when saving lives has become prolonging biological life for just a few months in, in, in the vast majority of cases among very, very elderly people. And the other side of that equation has been the vast swathe of destruction of, of human life from the very youngest all the way through. I mean, human beings are not just living cells. We're not just biologically alive. Human beings, and this is where, this is where the Christian worldview, I think, is, is so vital in all of this, because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. it's quite surprising to him to hear him say that. I suppose to say, uh, well, you know, he's he sounds like a COVID idiot, a COVID idiot, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a vaccine denier or whatever. COVID denier, vaccine. I've done a mixed metaphor there or something. He raised uh, one point he made, and uh, to raise the, uh, well, he said there was um, there was a milestone. I think where. He was giving a sermon and it and it just ticked over a hundred thousand COVID deaths uh, when he was mm-hmm. delivering this sermon and he and he pointed out in that same period there'd been a quarter of a million abortions. Right. Okay. Interesting. Not I'm not, you know, for or against abortion. Don't want to go down that plan that you know, but Yeah. That was what is life eighty, I think. Yeah. You know. It's a really interesting interview. It's only about 25 minutes, I think, half an hour. Yes, they sound very interesting people, don't they? Yeah. I think we should tap up the young priest. Yeah. Do you think he'd be down for the Inquisition? I would hope so. Yeah. And uh, very articulate, uh, well-read guy. He came across uh, really well. So check it out. Link will be in the description. Uh, YouTube sensation Jonathan Pye has weighed in on the vaccine wars. Who's Jonathan Pye? You don't know the, that kind of suit stands outside Westminster. Faux satirical reporter. He's aged so, about so, fifty years in the last six months. So he's not really a satirical reporter. He's a faux reporter <laughs> in a satirical <laughs> <Okay>. sense. <laughs> yeah. It's the whole concept is he starts and he's putting his his lapel mark on and he's getting ready. And he's ranting uh, about what's going yes. on. And then at the, the end of the clip, he goes, and then he delivers his first line of his piece to Camry. Oh, so it, right, okay. it's, the, it's the stolen minutes before the reporter goes live, where he rants okay. about what's going on. Given the choice, uh, Johnson & Johnson is the one I would want. It just sounds gentler. You know, BioNTech. That really does sound like you're being injected with nanobots. You know, Pfizer. AstraZeneca sounds like something out of Buck Rogers. Johnson and Johnson, you know, talc, baby oil. Reminds me of anal sex. <laughs> Funny you mentioned Johnson and Johnson and baby powder. Oh, uh, no, I was just about to say. Yeah, baby, I'll remind baby him, death. I'll remind him of this. This is Democracy Now! I am Amy Goodman. This week, a federal court ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay more than $2 billion to a group of women who developed ovarian cancer after using talcum powder contaminated with asbestos. In its ruling, the Eastern District Missouri Court of Appeals said Johnson & Johnson, quote, engaged in conduct that was outrageous because of evil motive and reckless indifference. Evil? I mean, that's like, that's a moral... <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. I mean, to label something as evil, I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. Unquote. The appeals court reduced the original verdict amount from 2018, which had been $4.7 billion. But Johnson & Johnson still faces thousands more lawsuits. It recently stopped selling its brand of talcum powder in the United States and Canada, but it continues to sell the products overseas. The lawyer for the plaintiffs told consumers they should throw away any baby powder in their homes. This is where it gets really disturbing. According to internal memos, Johnson & Johnson knew that asbestos may be in its talc products for at least half a century, 50 years. But as concern grew, Johnson & Johnson targeted its ad campaigns at black, Latinx and overweight women. In 2007, the year after the International Agency for Research on Cancer determined talc was, quote, possibly carcinogenic, Johnson & Johnson planned to market the product to African Americans in, quote, underdeveloped geographical areas with hot weather and higher AA population, unquote. Hey, oh, African American. These people have your best interests at heart <laughs> with their vaccine, apparently. There's so many fucking stories of corporate, yeah, I don't know, what's the word, e- e- evilness <laughs> yeah. like this, isn't there? Like the Teflon thing. It's just loads yeah. of stuff like that, isn't there? Yeah. And uh, especially with like banking, um, it's just a, these fines are just a running cost. Yeah, it's the you know. price of doing business. Mm, they probably someone, someone in an account somewhere has probably done an equation, yeah. uh, done a forecast of you know what they're likely to pay in court, lawyers' fees, all the rest of it, versus recall and. Yeah, there's a famous automotive study. Uh, yeah, it's example. the Ford thing, isn't there? Yeah, was it the airbags or something? Cars wasn't it, catch on knew... fire, and, yeah, and they calculated that it would be cheaper to pay out the lawsuits for people who died than to recall the products and fix it. Yeah. They have no, they place no value on human life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sign up for your vaccine. <laughs> uh, cast your mind back to episode 177, Chris Newby. Do you remember oh, yeah. when she was talking about the genetic modified ticks? Yes. Yes. And, and like, didn't they neuter them or something? And then released them, and they ended up breeding. Well, that was uh, mosquitoes, wasn't it? They, they were talking, oh, yeah, they were talking about the malaria. Ah, um, oh, I don't know. We were thought... talking about vectors, weren't we? I can't... It might have been, yeah. Anyway, there's a story here. Um, UK biotech firm: seven hundred and fifty million ge- genetically modified mosquitoes will mate with females off Florida. So a je- deadly mm. gene. Oxitech, a UK-based biotechnology company plans to release genetically modified mosquitoes in the Florida Keys this month as part of a trial to curb mosquito-borne diseases like dengue and the one that caused the Zika virus. This is the latest genetic engineering experiment targeting mosquitoes that is aimed at tackling diseases that continue to kill thousands every year, an approach that has its critics as well as backers. Mm. Only females of mosquitoes bite while males feed on all the nectar. The mosquitoes Oxitec plans to release will all be male, carrying a protein that will kill all their female offspring. The exact locations where the mosquitoes will be released have not been made public. I bet not. What could go wrong? Yeah, it's a bit scary, that, isn't it? Yeah, just fucking about, isn't it? Fucking about with nature. I'm sure the other thing as well in the news this week has been a, a malaria vaccine. Oh, yeah, 77% effective. 
<laughs> is that relative risk <laughs> reduction? Or is that... <laughs> he knows. Absolute risk reduction. Well, that's the first time I've ever heard... Other than, well, the COVID vaccines were the first time I'd heard a percentage success rate. And then it seems to have then been applied to this malaria thing as well. Yeah, I mean, they have them. They've had them for flu jabs and they change every year because the well, the manufacturing changes every year and the, and the, the seeds and stuff. But um, it's probably not on the news, I guess. Well, it certainly isn't on the news. And it's an, well, it's an estimation when it comes to the flu vaccine because we don't count flu cases in the same way. It's estimated. It's always estimated. We, we It's only in the last 12 months that we've developed this... Uh, Psychopathic need to test everything. <laughs> we don't. We don't do PCR tests for flu. No. So who knows That's how it's effective? Not, it's not a diagnostic uh, method, is it? PCR isn't. No. Do you want to hear about the the world's greatest skiver? Do I? Fuck me, yes. A man in Italy has been accused of skipping work on full pay, not just for a day or a week, but for 15 years. The 67-year-old man, who the Italian press have dubbed the King of Absentees, was a civil servant assigned to work at a hospital in the southern Italian city of Catanzaro in 2005. He's been accused of getting fed up with his role, then threatening the hospital directors to not report him. She subsequently retired, and her replacements never noticed his absence. Six managers of the hospital are under investigation after it emerged he pocketed €538,000 over the years without lifting a finger. Absenteeism is allegedly rife in Italy's public service and is under active investigation by... The- That's amazing. What a guy. <laughs> in the dream. But he got found. Well, I'm yeah. just wondering if it has some links to the, the mafia or something. Mm-hmm. Nah. Some kind of organised crime. It's like his legit paycheck. This is this this derived from your knowledge of watching The Sopranos? <laughs> uh, no, it's just stereotypes and racism, probably. <laughs> if you can call it racism, <laughs> Italians are race. I don't know. Can you? There was some sort of uh, some sort of manager left, and a new one came in and never bothered to ask. Where's that guy? <laughs> Has anyone seen Steve? <laughs> <laughs> For 15 years. <laughs> I mean... Uh, how much would you just not to give a shit about, <laughs> you, you know, things to not notice that? I don't know. That's mad, isn't it? And if you were the guy, like, getting paid for doing nothing, I think mm. if that was me and I knew I was doing it, I'd, I'd want to save up for a bit, maybe yeah. you know, a couple of years just in case. Yeah. But then after that, you'd be like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. He's got, yeah, he's, he's nice. going to prison, isn't he, by the sounds of it, unfortunately. Oh, is he? He's 67, mm. I think, now. Don't matter, does it? Not my fault. How good his English is, we could get him on. But if he's going to the clink, he'll, he'll probably be busy. Yeah. Um, Lawrence Fox, candidate for mayor of London. Are we familiar with Lawrence Fox? Yeah. Didn't he start that? Uh, I thought he was starting a party. Yes, yeah. Yeah, is it the Reclaim Party? Oh, I, don't I don't know. know. But anyway, is it candidate for London mayor and all-round mad lad. He's uh, outlined some of his some of his policies this week. 
We have allowed, we've let the genie out the bottle now, and the genie is out the bottle, which is that people will steadfastly bully other people that don't agree with them into submission. And I'm saying, no, be free. You are free. You are sovereign of your own body and your own decisions. And, that, and then you, you, people can go, oh, but you're an anti-vaxxer. I'm like, no, I just don't care whether you've had the vaccine. It doesn't bother me whether you've had the vaccine. It does, shouldn't bother you whether I've had it. It's none of your fucking business whether I've had it, actually. Fuck off. That's uh, policy number one. Would you Such like a diplomat? Would you like to hear his policy on face masks? Yeah. Is it just fuck off? <laughs> that's my that's, that's my political position on vaccines. That's that's and my political robust. position on masks is wear a mask if you want to wear a mask. I don't want to wear a mask. Yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah, called it. <laughs> wear a mask if you want to. Don't make me wear one. Fuck off. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't see a problem with that. Uh, one last policy. <laughs> what's, what's my next political position? <laughs> my next political position is do whatever you want. That's fine by me. Don't tell me what to do. Fuck off. Uh, what colour are the buses going to be? You know, I'm asking the questions people want the answers to. I think I'm going to be spray painted with fuck off down the side. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Fuck off and leave me alone. None of your business while I've been vaccinated. Wear a mask if you want to. Don't tell me to. Fuck off. I think that's fair enough. Fuck. Pass. It's, it's, a, it's a, a fair enough point. It's a position. It's, uh, it, it's his opinion. Whether it's uh, grounds for standing for Mayor of London, I'm, I'm not too sure. He probably needs some stronger policies on, on other stuff. He was in a pub beer garden at the time of recording. Ah. Uh, Maybe that had something to do with it. Okay. Uh, you brought up censorship before, Matt. Did I? Yeah, when we're talking about these, <laughs> the uh, the studies and the lack you of... Cut that bit out. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> well, um, congr- It's the Ofcom thing, isn't it? Sorry, if one says me. Ofcom thing? Yeah, you, there's like... There's diktats as to what stuff, what can be said on broadcast television and news, uh, radio, sorry. But yeah. anyway. um, this week has seen the 2021 Freedom of Expression Awards. Okay. And uh, here we have, uh, would you like to know the winner of the 2021 Freedom of Expression Award? I'm so excited to be here tonight to present Susan Wojcicki with the Free Expression Award. As the CEO of YouTube, Susan is facing some of the most critical issues around free expression today. When billions of people are on your platform every day, how do you make sure that everybody has a voice but also feels safe? Can you taste the irony? That's a bit. So bitter. (laughs) Well, this is the issue, isn't it? When are we getting episode 172 back, Susan? (laughs) I appealed on the 13th of April and not had yet a reply. Wow. That's bad. Mm. Anyway. Finger out, Susan. Yeah. Yeah, she's all about freedom of expression. Let's uh, find out more. Always updating our policies and when content is violative of of any of the policies, uh, unfortunately, we need to remove it. And uh, so we removed 9 million videos last quarter. um, And almost all of them, over 90%, we removed with machines, which is... So 9 million videos a quarter. I would argue that she is the biggest censor on the planet. 
<laughs> it's pretty, pretty close, yeah. And uh, yeah, Freedom of Expression Award, twenty twenty one. Yeah, so freedom of her expression to <laughs> to censor videos <laughs> at such a scale. Every time I upload a video, I feel the sword of Occam hovering <laughs> above my Damocles head. Damocles razor. <laughs> yeah, I just you just can't write. I mean, it's parody. Mm. Giving her that award. Who uh, who sponsors these awards? <laughs> Start interest. <laughs> yeah, I should have I should have done my homework really. Figure that out. Anyway, uh, I've got some breaking news. Uh, things have really turned for the worse in the US. Uh, here's creepy Uncle Joe to tell us. What people drastically underestimate is the impact on the mental health of people who now everything is complicated. Not only is the health care piece, but people don't have a job. People don't have anywhere to go. They don't know what they're going to do. And a lot of people you have... Unnecessarily, now we have over 120 million dead from COVID. 120 million. Now we have over 120 million dead from COVID. Did you not know over a third of the US population have been killed? That's, uh, it's not even in the world, is it? Is it not like 2 million or something in the world? Yeah. Now yeah. we have over 120 million dead from COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, the um... Spanish flu was about 50 million. Mm. Yeah. It's just, uh, it just seems to have happened overnight, this. I was unaware. It's not been on news or anything. It's mad. You'd think they would have reported that. Yeah. So, uh, thoughts and prayers for you over there, over the Atlantic. Mm. Mm. I did, uh, I did a, a, a DNA test for Zeus today. Oh. Yeah. Are you the father? <laughs> I'll find out in two to three weeks. All right, okay. What did you have to... Was it an anal swab test? <laughs> oh, no. Why have I not got it? Anal swab test. <laughs> no. No, it was a, a cheek. A cheek sample. Okay. Buckle swab. Buckle swab, yeah. Has he um, crushed any of your children yet? <laughs> <laughs> No, but we did have um, we did have a doorstop. <laughs> it's like a, a dog, like a mm-hmm. stuffed dog made of some sort of material, and uh, just going out the back door one day, he decides to just pick it up and uh, rip its head off, <laughs> and then uh, pull all the stuffing out of it and just thrash did it around in the sand did, pit. Did you just back away and close the door? Uh, well, you're not going to you're not going to get it off him, yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> I just said to her, we'll, we'll come back when he's finished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he uh, he got in the kitchen bin this week. Yeah, that was... He was left for five minutes. Five minutes oh. and he went... She went to drop the kids off mm-hmm. uh, in the morning mm-hmm. and then two minutes later I left for work. And me and the missus passed each other on the main road. So he was left alone for five minutes in the bin. Mm, it's all out. Meatballs. <laughs> all over the floor. It found some meatballs in the bin or something. Just anything. Anything that smells. He'll eat it. 
we have a we have a tub about eight inch in diameter by so that's two hundred mil by about three and a half inches by eighty mil. That is his treat box where we keep all his treats and we're going out for a walk. You grab a handful of treats and um, that was left with the lid. It has four clasps and it was on the side on the worktop and the clasps weren't fa- weren't fastened. And when we came home, it was empty. <laughs> Licked clean. <laughs> Whole tub. About half a tub. See, it's an eating machine. <laughs> so we're going to find out what he is in two to yeah. three weeks. Mm. My money's on dog. Definitely a dog. Do we, should we have a sweepstake or something? What breed he might be? Well, he's, 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 this is the thing, is his legs don't seem they fit his body. They're quite spindly for the for the barrel body that his, he has. His, uh, greyhound. His, his upper legs are, yeah. are huge. Right, okay, it's just, it's just a spindly bottom bit. So. Yeah. It's like he's walking around on chopsticks. He's got bigger hamstrings than Amish Ben. <laughs> Oh, yeah. he just has short legs. Out. Short legs like a mastiff. <sighs> it looks. I don't know. He's got a big head, doesn't he? <laughs> As well, that's a big head. Yeah. It definitely looks <coughs> like Kara, doesn't he? Yeah. I don't know if he's a bit of a bit of a boxer in there. I see a bit of Ooh. boxer in his face, personally. And he does pour. <laughs> he does pour as well. He's caught me in the face a couple of times. Well, he sla- slaps you around a bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when he's on his back. Left hook. Roll over, tick on my belly. Yeah. If you stop, he pulls at you. Carry on. Right, Okay. Rub my belly. Yeah. I don't know, maybe we should have a sweepstake. Okay. I reckon there'll be some rotty, rotty in him. Yeah, I'm erring towards that. We'll, we shall see. Oh, don't, Dobermans have quite thin legs. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. Have we, uh... Anything I've expended to, myself, yes. Anything to add? Okay, 20 past 10 already. Uh, Epstein didn't kill himself. Yeah. Happy birthday, Happy huge Amos. <laughs> huge Ackman. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we sign off for this week? Yeah. Got a, I'll see you on uh, Thursday for me. Thursday. In space. Okay. Uh... Tobias Whalen next week. Mothman. Oh, Excellent. yeah. He's managed to dig he himself all... out of his home. Is he going to be all dusty and shit? <laughs> I don't know. Like a moth. <laughs> <laughs> he, he isn't Mothman. That would, that would be a, like a world exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> don't touch him because he won't be able to fly again. <clears throat> right. Make sure you join us next week for Tobias Whale and talking about Mothmen. Yep. Sorry, I've assumed the gender. Moth people. People. Person. Yeah. Okay. 
poison. Can't have children with chest feeding. Literally a communist. Take care. Epstein didn't kill himself. Heard that. Vegan sausage roll. Happy birthday. Jesus Christ. How dare you? Come here, goose, you big. Communist. The dwarf, the cripple, the, the grape, the crunch, the cripple, and the mother of beasts from hell. I've been coming to terms with the fact that I am fucking vegan. You have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. And Corn Pop was a bad dude. Caught between the devil and the rock at a half place. This is such a crock of beasts and the mother of madness. 